on this episode of The Jason Wright Show. On September 30th, 2013, I had what most people would say was it all. I owned four homes, I drove the nice cars, I wore five-figure watches, I had VIP status at some of the finest restaurants in Greenwich, Connecticut and Manhattan. Um, I had a, a marriage, I had a great career, I had the job title, I had all of that. Again, I had what you would call was it all. On October 1st, 2013, I was walking into my new office. Um, I had been hired by our biggest competitor. They wooed me away with a uh, aggressive pay package. I was really pumped to be working there. I was only there for about two weeks. And I am setting up my desk for the day, like we all would, you know, when you go, when we used to go into an office, you know, I'm putting my laptop down, I'm putting my notebook down, my pen, and I take my phone out of my pocket and I put it on, I go to put it on the desk and I notice there's a, a missed call and a voicemail. I think that's so strange. Who's calling me at Tuesday at 8.45 a.m.? And so I do what we all do. I put it to my ear. And this is what I heard. Mr. Stanland, this is Special Agent McTiernan with the FBI. We are at your residence and have a warrant for your arrest. Folks, if you've been listening to The Jason Wright Show for any period of time, then you've heard me mention a book that has been incredibly influential on my life. That is Viktor Frankl's classic, Man's Search for Meaning. So much so does this book mean to me that it was the inspiration for my book, The Stone Chiseler, which you can pick up right now at Amazon.com or check out an audio copy at Audible.com. I hope you will check it out. The Stone Chiseler, available now. This is inspired by Victor Frankel's Man's Search for Meaning, and I hope that it inspires you as well. Thanks. Now, enjoy the show. Hey guys, it's Jason. You know I am the improve always and always guy. Have you ever wanted to live the improve always and always lifestyle day in and day out? Well, guess what? There's an app for that. It's the Vitruvian Lab, and you can go to the Apple Store right now and download it for free. And I got to tell you about my latest course. It's Massively Transformative Habits, MTH. This is a course where I not only give you the science-backed research of those universal habits that every single one of us need to adopt for better health, better thinking, better relationships, living longer and living healthier, but also I give you the behavioral science that will help you understand how to make these behaviors habits. It's one thing to know what you should be doing. It's another thing to know how to start habits, but combining the two, knowing exactly what you should be doing every single day of your life for a more joyful, fulfilling life, a healthier life, and also how to make those habits stick it's all in massively transformative habit here's where you can learn all about it jasonrightnow.com forward slash m t h jasonrightnow.com forward slash m t h go out to the app store download the vitruvian lab for free then go over and check out jasonrightnow.com forward slash m t h 
there's only going to be 50 slots for this initial cohort. I want you to check it out. If you have any questions, contact me. Find out if this is right for you. I would love to talk to you. That's jasonrightnow.com forward slash MTH. Check out Massively Transformative Habits. Now, enjoy the show. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I almost forgot the best part. Because you are a Jason Wright Show listener, you get $100 off the course should you decide to take it. All you have to do is put in promo code podcast at the checkout and you get the course for $100 off. Check it out. Promo code podcast. Go right now. JasonRightNow.com forward slash MTH. I will see you there. All right, Craig Stanlin, I am now recording, and I am so glad to have you on the Jason Wright Show. Welcome, brother. Jason, thank you so much for having me. We just chatted for, what, five, seven minutes before we hit record. Probably some really good stuff in there, but it's an indicator of the conversation we're about to have. So I'm, I'm pumped. I agree. And one of the things that makes this conversation tough for me, you know, okay, so I have guests on that are, I know are going to be fun. They're going to be informative. It's going to be, I mean, I have the, the people that have come on this show, I'm just so very grateful for. But yours is one that's not only is I, is it going to be fun and informative, but I think a lot of your story is important. I think it's important for every single one to hear because you your 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 story covers shame. Your story covers rediscovery, reinvention. You know, realizing that you've lived out one of my favorite quotes from Dale Carnegie, which is every day is a new life for a wise man right and so there's there's things so so to the listener to just whatever you're doing if you're driving try to get where you're going quickly come back because i'm telling you i know enough of your story craig that there are going to be people that might be like oh my god this could be very revolution uh, not revolutionary but uh, a lot of revelation that could come from this so no pressure buddy you know <laughs> But that's just kind of that was I, a tremendous buildup. I hope I live up to it. Yeah, I, I, I want to, uh, I, but I do want to tee it up like that so the listener knows that this is going to be a really great conversation. All right, so the where where I would like to begin is, I don't know. We can start in prison. We can start prior prison. We can start. I, I want you to kind of take us where this story begins as you see it. Kind of, kind of the enough of the you know, I guess, let's say Craig 1.0 versus Craig 2.0. And I don't know, maybe, maybe the, the issue at work that led you in serving time and then, but then, but then led to be an author. Maybe that is the, uh, the, 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 the junction in life that this all began. Maybe there's several in between them, but you're the storyteller kind of start this story where you think makes the most sense. Absolutely. And thank you for teeing it up that way. So what I think we're going to do is we're going to go back to September 30th, 2013. Okay. On September 30th, 2013, I had what most people would say was it all. I owned four homes. I drove the nice cars. I wore five-figure watches. I had VIP status at some of the finest restaurants in Greenwich, Connecticut and Manhattan. Um, I had a, a marriage. I had a great career. I had the job title. I had all of that. Again, I had what you would call was it all. On October 1st, 2013, I was walking into my new office. Um, I had been hired 
by our biggest competitor. They wooed me away with a uh, aggressive pay package. I was really pumped to be working there. I was only there for about two weeks. And I am setting up my desk for the day, like we all would, you know, when you go, when we used to go into an office, you know, I'm putting my laptop down, I'm putting my notebook down, my pen, and I take my phone out of my pocket and I put it on, I go to put it on the desk and I notice there's a, a missed call and a voicemail. I think that's so strange. Who's calling me at Tuesday at 8.45 a.m.? And so I do what we all do. I put it to my ear and this is what I heard. Mr. Stanland, this is Special Agent McTiernan with the FBI. We are at your residence and have a warrant for your arrest. You oh, need wow. to call us and come home immediately or we will issue a warrant with the federal marshals. October 1st, 2013 is the day I lost everything and the day that my life changed. Now, the question is, at that moment, did you know why? Did, you, did, did it occur to you, oh, I knew this. Was it kind of a Dostoevsky moment, like in Crime and Punishment, where you're, was there relief? I mean, what is that initial feeling when you get that voicemail? So I had taken the elevator up 37 floors to get to my office. My heart and stomach fell the 37 floors that I had just come up. I was having difficulty breathing. I, this is going to sound ridiculous. I thought that that voicemail was broadcast through the entire office for everybody, all my brand new colleagues to know that I was wanted by the FBI. It felt like there was a neon sign over my head. Through all of that inner turmoil, my heart spoke and my heart spoke crystal clear. And it said, I told you so. Really? That's a long way to answer that I knew that it had caught up with me. Wow. All right. So just because everyone's going to be curious, I know the story because just from research, but kind of what were you doing? Why, what had gotten you into this position? So that's a, that's, a, that's a big question. So I had all of that corporate success. I had all of that store-bought status and prestige and all of these things. And two things started happening simultaneously. The products that I was selling were becoming more commoditized. I was a senior enterprise uh, account manager for a large technology firm, selling all of, basically selling all the devices that make the internet work into the largest financial institutions in the world. Those products were becoming more commoditized. So my paycheck started shrinking. Number two, I got so caught up in that lifestyle of whining and dining and buying and all of those things that when I should have been really working and servicing my clients the way that they deserve to be serviced, I'm out with my wife at the time, walking up and down Greenwich Avenue, um, drinking champagne, buying Christian Louis Vuittons and Jimmy Choo's and just living the life. And so that impacted my paycheck. I'm not showing up the way that I'm supposed to show up. So my paycheck is dropping precipitously, but my need, my desire, my my need to fill myself from within because I just didn't feel worthy of any of my success. I didn't feel worthy of my marriage. I didn't feel like I was ever enough without those things. My identity had become so inextricably interwoven with my things and my ability to buy those things. Well, now I got a real serious problem because my paychecks are shrinking and that is threatening my identity. So I start scrambling for a solution and I realized that I could exploit our partner company's warranty policy for my financial gain. And that was, it was, there was one day 
when I when I was you know it took me months to put this fraud together. It took me months. I looked like uh, looked like Russell Crowe in a beautiful mind. I had post-it notes all over the place. I mean, I looked like a lunatic. I had notes all over, and I'm sitting at my dining room table, and I realized that this fraud's going to work. It's it's this can come together. This is going to solve my problems. And I'm hovering my finger over the mouse button to hit that send button to initiate the fraud. And you know how my heart said, stop, don't, you know, my heart said, yeah. I told you so. Yeah. In that moment, it said, stop, don't do this. This is not the way. Oh, wow. But you did. And anyway. I, the, the excitement that I had found this treasure map that I felt that nobody else knew about, that I was going to solve my problems, that I was going to keep my identity whole. Um, that outweighed that voice. And so I hit that send button, initiated the fraud. Let me tell you something, it worked like a charm. Really? It was seamless. It was absolutely seamless. And the fraud went on for just under a year, about 10 and a half months. It required thousands of choices to continue that fraud. Each and every one of them was made in the face of my heart saying, stop, don't do this. This is not the way. Let me ask you this, and the reason why I'm asking is uh, it's purposeful because I know what you do now as far as coaching and helping others to to change their mindsets. And what, how much of this do you think had to do with? Well, let me back let me back up a little bit. Fixed versus growth mindset. How would you categorize yourself at this time? At this time, yeah, before that, being arrested, before being I was arrested. I was as I was as fixed as go. a piece of rebar in cement. There you go. <laughs> There you go. And, <laughs> and so, and, and I want you to take this, Craig, that's, that's awesome. See, I knew, you know, we, and we didn't practice this folks beforehand. I just, I, I know enough about your background. And the reason why I bring this up is because, you know, I do a lot of coaching on fixed versus growth mindset as well. And I think a lot of people get that term confused. They think that, well, that just, I'm, I'm a positive thinker. I'm successful. I mean, look at you, you were successful. You had the cars, you had the, you had the shoes, you had the clothes, you had the, you know, you're popping bottles, you know, and, and you're in Greenwich, Connecticut, for crying out loud. So if anybody doesn't know where Greenwich, Connecticut is, it is the most expensive zip code in the country. At least it was at one time. And um, and yet uh, what people don't realize is that by having this zero sum game idea of life, success, ability, I, ergo a fixed mindset, then when you think you've reached the pinnacle of your intelligence or your abilities, to to do it the right way, then you start making compromising choices. And it sounds like that's what's happened here. So could you talk a little bit because now that we've got Craig 2.0 that I, I would I'm I'm gonna just go ahead and get on that limb and hope it doesn't snap that has much more of a growth mindset. Give this audience an understanding of how a fixed mindset had this adverse impact on you back at that time. One of the ways that comes up for me was the first thing, as you were talking about this, one word just was ringing in my ears was perfectionism. Yeah. Was just perfectionism. I had to win the deal. I had to look this way. I had to do these things. Things had to be perfect. Otherwise I wasn't perfect. I wasn't enough. I wasn't worthy. Yep. That was how it really showed up in my life. And the honest to God fact was, that I didn't like my job. I liked what my job afforded me. What I really wanted to do, and this is going to, I think, blend really nicely into this growth mindset. I wanted to write a screenplay. I wanted to write a book. I wanted to invent something. I wanted to launch my own business. 
But all of those things require a great deal of risk. Yep. You can fail, yep. which really we'll get into it, but it's not failure. But in that fixed mindset, I could fail. I could be judged. I thought I had to give up everything I'd worked so hard to create, those watches, the cars, the lifestyle. I thought I had to give that up. I thought I had to burn it to the ground to be able to start over from scratch so that I could go after the things that I really wanted. Wow. And that was that, that was that fixed mindset. Now with the growth mindset, you know, one way to put it is what I was, I wrote a piece the other day. I'm not sure if I'm going to publish it. It's a little bit rusty, um, but I think there's value in it. It was the, uh, the title of it was kind of like, what if making goals was the, what if, what if making mistakes was the goal? meaning if I'm not tripping and falling, if I'm not pushing myself, if I'm not screwing up and making those mistakes, then I'm not growing. Yeah. I'm not doing what I need to be doing. So it's the idea of like kind of chasing those mistakes, going a little bit out on that limb, seeing if it's going to snap. I think you've got something there because, you know, I've heard pushback from different people. And I think we all get the understanding of when people say, you know, fell fast and fell often. It's kind of the same. It's kind of the same idea, but I like that better as setting yourself up, setting those failures up because as goals, because that means that setting risks up, you know, that are, and I was talking, you heard that I was talking to, to James the other day, whenever I was, I got to be on the James Alter show. And we mentioned this, that's one of the things that it's, I used to be that guy. I mean, man, I suffered from a fixed mindset for years and years. And a lot of the not willing to take the risk had to do with identifying that potential failure because that's what I identified with. If I do this and it doesn't work out, then I'm 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 a failure. That, that identity-based uh, idea of what success is and what failure is, and I think begin giving yourself the opportunity. And like what we talked about was we place such um, high stakes on low ball situations you know and that's that's one of the things that like and, we, and also like you said you felt like you had the neon sign over your head craig man that's how we live a lot of our lives we think that every risk that we're taking that we're standing in the center of the coliseum and everybody's watching us try to you know write this book and get it published we think that there's this audience watching us the whole time and we also think that and, and that if we do it and it doesn't become a bestseller it does, there's no success, then everybody's going, oh, look, you, who did you think you are? And the thing is, most people are living their lives. They're not, they're not, they don't. And, and, and the thing is, I think that it's probably from a self-preservation and self-protection thing that I, I think we, I, let me just speak for me. I'm not gonna speak for everybody else. I think a lot, of, a lot more people want me to fail than succeed. And I think I'm wrong about that. I think a lot of people like to see others succeed. I think there are a lot of jealous and a lot of people that, are, that get upset that someone, someone is willing to take risks that they're not. But I also think there's a lot of people that go, you know what, I've never had the courage to do that, but man, it's so cool to see that Craig has put himself out there and done that. Right. I mean, I, I think that's I think that's a that's a great, great lesson you just taught everybody about <laughs> the goal to take risks. I think I think the I think a lot of people do want to see others succeed. And I do think that anytime somebody says you can't do that or who do you think you are, which really is just saying you can't do that. I mean, at the end of the day, it's you can't do that. Right. To me, that is um, 
I, I'm jealous of what you're about to do. Yep. Um, I want to do that. I don't know how. Your success is going to be a mirror to my inadequacy. You know, I think there's a lot of, it's not you can't do that. It is somebody's perceptions of the world and their perceived limitations within that world. Yep. You know, and I think that is, and when we start understanding that, it gives us that little bit of room. And I love, you know, to this point, if somebody ever, you know, says that to me now, if it's something that neither of us have ever done, how do you know what I can do? Neither of us has even tried. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and that's, you know, and like going back, you know, to, uh, to James Altucher, you know, he, he said basically what you just said is like most people that say you can't do that. What they're saying is I can't do that. That's what they're saying. They're saying because they, they, they put, they put everything through this filter of what they believe that they can and can't do. And it might not be the actual tactical doing the thing. Like they don't know how it might just be, they know they don't have the courage to do it. So therefore you can't possibly do that. That's what most people, you know, that, that are saying you can't do that. They're saying really, no, I can't do that. They have no idea no. what we're capable of. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I want to touch on something I think is really important in regards to that fixed mindset versus growth. Um, for me, you know, I like how you said you're going to speak for yourself. Mine was, and I think this is universal, but I'm speaking for myself, mm -hmm. um, outcome. Yes. Everything is measured on the outcome. You know, um, if my book doesn't sell X amount of copies, which by the way, I have no control over, I can't make somebody hit the purchase now button on Amazon. That's right. uh, you know, I have no control over that, but that fixed mindset is so outcome. And I think there's a lot of, um, for me, a connection to when I was young, having to get the hundred on a test. You know, if I didn't get, if I fell short of a hundred, that test was no good. Didn't matter if it was a 97, 98, 99. Perfection right. was what was expected. And then all of a sudden that becomes very outcome-based. And if I don't land exactly where I need to be, I'm like you said, a failure. You know, and that growth mindset is that effort. When, when, who do I become on the way to that goal? That's the ice. That's that's the gold. Exactly. It's enjoying the journey and there's never really, it's, it's no, everything becomes a no lose situation because you can, if you're smart, you can always get wisdom and, and lessons out of it. Now, here's one more thing before we go back to that horrible voicemail and what came after, because I want to land, I want to get a little bit more just for the audience's benefit here. So you were a high performing fixed mindset or just like I have been for most of my life. We, we have a, this, a, and that can be a really dangerous thing because then all of a sudden, and this is the case with most fixed mindsetters, right? It's like, we're really good at appearing growth-minded and successful because we've got all these things. We're like, we, we've got the cars, we've got the success, we've done these things, but really, and then all of a sudden, we start living our lives to live up to the expectations and the image that we've helped create that others have of us. So before we leave this fixed versus growth mindset topic, just kind of talk to this audience again and reinforce, you've touched on it already, but reinforce how the cars and the success and then compromising your integrity to maintain that, how that is an artifact of that fixed mindset. Because I think a lot of people, that's again, they don't understand the power that we give the expectations of others on our lives. And I think the, so the cars, the watches, the dinners, you know, all the popping bottles, all that stuff, those are all outcomes. Those are all outcomes. Buying a BMW, that's an outcome. That is a definitive thing. It has no, uh, it has no um, tie 
to the effort that was required to get to that level to buy that automobile. It's literally, it, it, you know, in a sense, and for me, it was ignoring all of the work that I did, closing those big deals, and just looking at that car, that watch, as my identity and who I am and that outcome. It didn't, I didn't think about when I was, you know, buying those things, well, you know, I really worked hard on that deal. Right. I really, I closed a really difficult deal. I handled a challenging negotiation in a way that actually worked for the customer, you know, really breaking it down. No, I get to buy a fancy car now. Right. You know, and that to me is just that. And that's how it can be, I think, very confusing to your point. We can look at somebody externally and say that they've got X amount of cars. They, you know, live this kind of lifestyle. They must be growth mindset. And that just ignores what the motivations are, what the intrinsic motivations are, what the thought processes are behind that. You know, it's so often we, it's too easy to judge somebody's outside versus our insides. Absolutely. All right. So now neon signs over your head, your, your stomach has now reached the end of your toenails and what's the next move? I mean, do you call say, Hey, special agent, uh, got your message. I think you got the wrong guy. What's the, what's the first call you make and how long, I mean, just kind of take us because I don't think most people can understand what that must've been like kind of an outer body experience. Probably what's your next move at that point. It was, I had to, I had to recover from that sheer terror. I had to recover from that. And now all of a sudden, you know, I just showed up at work. So I have to come up with an excuse why I'm leaving. Then I've been here for five minutes. You know, am I sick? Do I have a client meeting? Do I have something? I went with a client meeting. Nobody seemed to care anyway, because I was fairly independent at the job as a sales guy. And then I, I got my car from the garage and I made the hour long trip from Manhattan to Connecticut. And so the first phone call was actually to my wife at the time. Mm -hmm see what was going on. No, no, I'm sorry. I called the FBI first. <laughs> I called the FBI as soon as I was in the safety of my car. I wasn't going to call from the office. I wasn't going to call on the busy, you know, Manhattan streets. I'm going to get in the car and I called and said, I'm coming home. And they're like, you better be here within a certain time frame, or we will start looking for you. So it was like, you know, making sure I don't speed home because I don't need to get pulled over on top of, you know, the FBI looking for me. So that was my very first call. Then after that was calling my wife at the time just to, to see what I was getting into to see what was waiting for me. And it took seven excruciatingly long rings for her to, her to pick up. And she picked up with this voice that was just sheer fear and sadness. And she just said, Craig, what's happening? And I couldn't reply to her because I didn't know. I knew that they were there for actions I had taken. I didn't know what the scene was. I didn't know what she was experiencing. There were, turns out, about 15 agents showed up. They knocked on the door about 8.30 a.m. Uh, she was still in bed with our little uh, Westie uh, named Matisse. And she goes to answer the door to 15 federal agents pointing pistols, shotguns, and assault rifles at her head oh, and gosh. at her chest, executing a search warrant. When they come, they come guns blazing. Wow. You know, and that's, that's she was dealing with that, with them invading our home, you know, our safe space. Yeah. And so we, we didn't want to say too much. We thought, I mean, she was surrounded by agents, so she didn't want to say too much. I thought the phone call was being monitored. You know, I figured they had a bug on everything. 
So I couldn't say that much. And it was just driving into pure uncertainty. That's what it was, it was just driving into the unknown and the biggest unknown, one of the biggest unknowns I've ever faced. So I, I can't even imagine what that conversation must have been like with uh, with your wife at that point. So unless unless there's some texture that we need to get to, because I'm traveling with you, and for anyone that has, have you read Crime and Punishment, Craig? I no, I haven't. Okay. I have not. I think that that would be a good one for you to read for your material, for your books, and for your teaching, because you, you've lived this out in a way that few people truly understand. I, I'm I'm hearing themes because I know I know I know what's gonna I know the way this story ends, and I know some of the things that happened as you go into this next chapter with regard to what your plans at one point were for your own life and kind of what that looked like, which is very much um, follows crime and punishment, which all of Dostoevsky's work it has an underlying meaning, uh, usually kind of the human experience and human character. So that's kind of interesting how this is tracking. So let's, what happens next? Do, do, other than, is there anything between this day and you get your sentencing that we need to cover? Or can we go to, can we now go from Greenwich, Connecticut, much nicer I, from your home, I'm much nicer, I'm assuming, than prison. But if there's anywhere we need to stop in between there, I want to go to prison. We can absolutely go to prison, but I want to, I want to just say that the, the scarlet letter, mm. the moment that that voicemail came through, that neon sign, there was just a scarlet letter that I was arrested by the FBI, that I was a felon, that I was scum. Yeah. I would... Um, I, I found it challenging to have conversations with people. I developed a little trick. I'd look at the um, tip of their left ear so that I'm not looking in their eyes because I couldn't make eye contact with anybody anymore because they saw through me. I felt like a ghost. It was just pure shame. I thought the people at the gas station, I thought people at any store I went into, I thought they all knew. I, I just wore it on my sleeve. And that's that shame. And that shame is really going to bring us into into prison where it, it came to a head. I think that I'm so glad you brought that up because that's one of the things that I, I would just like to, and you can add to this if you, if you like for, for the audience listening, when it comes to shame, it's, it's such a sad and debilitating uh, thing that can overcome so many of us. I know that there, there are things like that for me, whenever I was going through my divorce, I felt that it didn't matter why it happened. I felt like, everyone was looking at me as a failure and I had failed. And, and, and by the way, I thought it was the first thing that everyone saw when they saw me was, Oh yeah, your marriage fell apart. Oh wow. Those poor daughters. And even though people may not have even heard that I was divorced, I mean, that they did, but your, our assumption is whatever our worst experience in life is. And the thing that we have valued and prided ourselves on, we know what pride can cause it. It, we, we assume we all have that scarlet letter or neon sign over our head. And I would just, again, I mentioned this earlier, but to the, to the audience as kind of an encourager, and I know that Craig, I know that this will probably come up in your story more. You, we are, we are so much more than the sum of our worst decisions, our worst experiences. And by the way, most people again are too busy living their lives. They're not placing nearly as much emphasis and they, and they, and most people, unlike, in politics, most people actually look at us in the in the total of our lives. They don't sit there 
and look at us for this thing. So I just, you saying that I can so relate and understand that when you go up, like I had this friend, man, we were at dinner. It was a number of years ago. And this girl, uh, she and her husband came to dinner with Jimlin and I, and she had had a really horrible thing happen in her life. That was very public, very, she was very exposed. It was terrible. And she had made a very bad choice. And she immediately within like 10 minutes of the conversation brings up this incident. And he said, I'm sure you've heard about all this. And Craig, I had no idea what she was talking about. I didn't know it had ever happened, but bless her heart in her mind. The first thing that I was thinking and seeing was this experience. So she probably think she probably was trying to like say, yeah, I know this happened and I know that, you know, and it's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I think so many of us do that. And so just to the listener out there, be encouraged. You are way more than the sum of your worst life experiences. So anyway, I mean, and I'll, I'll add to that with um, our past cannot define us without our consent. Oh, that's That's a say that again. That is that's money, Craig. Say that again. Our past cannot define us without our consent. That is beautiful. And thank you. When I came to that, that was that would, I might be jumping ahead. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but that came to me after I delivered my um, TEDx. And that was, you know, I had I'd done a tremendous amount of work to navigate that shame, you know. Um, but I, until I got off that stage, when I realized I had just in a sense spoken to the entire world and shared what you and I are going to get into in prison and shared that openly and as vulnerably and as raw as I possibly could, I didn't realize I was carrying that weight. I thought I had, I thought I had let it go, but man, when I came off that stage, I let it go. And that's when I realized that our past cannot define us without our consent. I was letting that in. Wow. All right. So now the sentence has been read. You, I guess they, they probably gave you a change of clothes that was different than your normal Brioni suit. Um, and so what happens next? So really, I wanted to share. So when you, when I checked in at a medium security facility. Okay. So I actually went to a federal prison camp. So I was with other white collar offenders and nonviolent drug offenders. I was very fortunate that my safety was never a concern. But you check in at the medium where the murderers and rapists and gang members and where horrible things, the ones that we're used to seeing it you know, on TV. Right. And you're in the catacombs of this place. And you could feel the weight of the prison firmly on your shoulders. And you have to do a strip search. It's part of the mandatory thing, which is humiliating. It was the second time I had to do it. It's humiliating unto itself. I'm thinking it's a little more thorough than the TSA search. It's, it's a little more thorough. And I won't get into the details now. <laughs> go ahead, audience, if you want to Google what they do, go, go for it. But it's, it's humiliating. I mean, it's, it's extremely thorough. So I'm sitting here, and for the audience, I am, at the time of checking into prison, um, I weighed 109 pounds. I'm 5'4", I'm a short guy, but I lost over 30 pounds out of stress. I checked in at 109 pounds. I graduated high school at 115, so it was less than a, you know high school. So I'm sitting here naked, covering myself up. Obviously, I'm not big, and the CEOs, um, who are actually nice, but they go, what size are you? I was like, small, extra small. And they lay, chuckle and laugh. And I watched them reach for the double XL large. 
And it turns out that's a nice little fun game that they like to play on the new end rates. If you're a very large person, you get the smallest clothes that you can fit into and vice versa. So here I am walking into prison, folding my pants, swimming in my clothes. And just like you said, it's not my theory and my Vince and my, you know, all of my nice clothes that I was used to, my John Barbados. Right. It's, you know, I'm, I'm holding my stuff up. Fortunately, when I checked in, somebody gave me a belt. Um, and it was a few days before I actually got clothes that fit me. Oh, God. But it's just like, you know, you, when you enter prison, I have a friend who um, also served time, and he's got the greatest analogy for it in the world. It is you, you fly a plane into this country that you have no idea what this country is. You've never even heard of it. Um, you kind of know it exists, but you've never really heard of it. And you get off the plane and immediately people start speaking in a language that you don't understand. You don't know the rules. You don't know what's going on. You don't know where you're supposed to go or how anything works. That's what going into prison is like. And okay. So I got to imagine the anxiety level is just at at an 11. And then when, when do you, when you first get your, you get through that, you get through the stress that, and you, I guess you, whether it's your, your cell, a holding cell, prior cell, when do you finally get some time to sit and just contemplate this massive drastic change that your, that your life has taken? So I'm going to answer this in two parts, because I think this is um, important. Okay. Uh, that in between getting arrested and going to prison for months, uh, because I am a small guy, um, I thought, that I was going to be raped and beaten every single day for my 24 month sentence. I I genuinely believe that. I didn't know because my pretrial probation officer, out of the kindness of her heart, she said, don't research prisons. It's only gonna make you nervous. So I didn't look anything up. I didn't know that a federal prison camp existed. I thought I was going to Oz. I thought that's all there was. So for about four months until somebody told me that's that's not what's gonna happen, Every single day I lived in that fear of being raped and beaten just because I may have a pretty solid right hook, but I'm not a big man. And what am I going to do in a prison like that? So I lived with that. So the first day that I got there, when I checked into the camp, I saw this giant man, this six foot four, 275 muscular dude. And he is bending over and giving baby talk to a cat. He's rubbing this cat's tummy, the cat's rolling around on its back, this cat trusts this man implicitly. And it was in that moment, just that one moment, I was like, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. So that was the first part of answering that question. And then to really your question was, when did I get an opportunity to, to sit down and to think about it? Well, it took a couple of months for me to kind of settle in to feel like I had my legs underneath me. And that's when I started journaling. I never forget. It was, um, I went to, uh, Otisville federal prison camp, which is about two hours North of Manhattan. So it's kind of in the, in the sticks of New York and it was unseasonably warm the fall. And I was sitting out one of the picnic tables and I'm journaling. I'm trying to make sense of why I'm there. Um, why did I make the choices that I made? Why did I sacrifice so much for so little, you know, I'm, I'm going through this and there were some guys working out in the gym 
and I could hear the rap music coming from the gym. Two other guys were playing paddle ball and there's that rhythmic, you know, the ball hitting the wall just rhythmically. And the, the shadows from the trees above me were just kind of dancing on the picnic table and between the rap music and the, the ball hitting the wall, these shadows, I just went into this state, this very calm state. And I just felt a little bit at peace. And then all of a sudden, like a lightning bolt from the universe that sledgehammered me in the head, I instantly understood what was important in this life. And that's friends and it's family and it's connection, it's creativity, it's freedom. All of these things that were at my fingertips and didn't cost a thing and that I took so far for granted. And I looked up to the universe. I'm not a religious man, but I, I looked up and I just said, thank you, thank you, thank you. I won't F it up this time. And then I heard the rap music and I heard the ball hitting the wall and I snapped back and I looked to my surroundings. And this speaks to the shame and we're gonna get a little deeper into this, I'm sure. But I had already at that point started thinking about how I wasn't going to be able to make it through this. And so when I snapped out of it, I looked around and I just said, I was just given the gift of a good life and I'm going to die before I have a chance to take advantage of it. Wow, man, that's, that is, that's pretty powerful stuff, man. And like, I think that one of the things that, I, again, I hope this audience understands is you lost everything. And I don't think, I mean, look at the things that we get scared of in everyday life. And, and I'm guilty of it. I mean, for me, for years and years, it was always going broke, going broke. I'm so scared. I'm going to go broke. I'm going to go broke. And th by God's grace, I didn't have to go to prison to figure it out. But by God's grace, and I didn't have to go to broke to figure it out. But I did whenever my family fell apart. That's whenever I finally you know, realized what matters and how little material we need. That was kind of like my bottom of the barrel moment. And I think, I hope that the, the listener that's listening to this, they understand that you're listening to a guy who, whatever your worst fear is audience with the exception of maybe, you know, getting, you know, a, a life threatening illness, cancer, or whatever, but just the, the normal everyday crap we worry about in life, losing your house, losing your job, all of that. You're listening to a guy. It happened. It happened. Whether it was self-inflicted or not, irrelevant. It happened, and he's here to talk about it. He's here to have to be able to tell all of us what he has learned from it. I'm reminded of this, Craig. I, I remember when I uh, uh, early in my real estate career. So my the first company I bought was a well, you know this story. The first company I bought was a real estate company. I'm sitting down with uh, this. Uh, elderly couple, man, they were pushing 80 between the two of them. They were about to pay cash for this, uh, this home that I, that I had listed and I was selling them. And, I, and so they start telling me kind of their, their story. And um, they tell me about how, and it's, it's funny, we were talking about Steinbeck before we got on, on the, before we started recording, they had kind of lived through kind of that grapes of wrath life of where they lost everything he was a construction worker. They just, you know, traveled around looking for, for work. And he eventually finds this little motel that he can, he can afford for them to, to live while he goes out and does day work. And I mean, just went through this, these horrible circumstances, lost everything. They went completely bankrupt. And then here they were sitting with me, buying their last home, writing a check for it. The, the, the two happiest people in the world. And for someone like me at that time, who was a young business owner who thought, 
each and every day was a chance I was going to go broke and lose it all. And people would figure out that I was not nearly as smart as I appeared. And, you know, I was this total loser. And yeah, I'm sitting there witnessing these people. It's like, and it made me think kind of like, I don't know, kind of the revelation of the, the big guy petting the cat gave you some revelation. That, okay. There is some humanity that exists behind these walls. For me, it was like, Wow, here's some people that they're not worrying about the crap anymore. And that they ma- they did make it. They went through the stuff that I'm so scared of, and here they are. And so to the listener out there, I just as a, I hope you're getting that. But to me, Craig, what your story shows is, brother, you've been to the pit, you've been in the depths of the valley, and you're here to talk about it. And not only that, you've built from it. And so I just think that's quite remarkable. And but so now you're to the point where it sounds to me like basically you had this kind of almost euphoric moment of, wow, now you know what's important, but you're also struggling with the fact that you're like, but I'm not going to be able to make it through this. This is just like, I've just, I've I've had this kind of mountaintop experience of, wow, now I know what matters in life. But then just, just like that, you're dropped back into the valley of your mind. Pick up from there. So my, like I said, I went to a prison camp and my safety was never a concern. Um, Quite frankly, the landscaping was kind of pretty. We also had deer, we had the cat, we had, you know, we had nature um, and it was really fortunate. My prison was my mind, like you said. It was that shame. It was the fact that my heart thousands of times said, stop, don't do this. This is not the way. The fact that I ignored giant red flags a man in the middle of the Super Bowl in the 50-yard line running up and down with a red flag. I ignored all of that. That shame and the repercussions of my actions. Um, I, I envisioned when I started journaling in prison, just envisioned a calm pond. And that was my life, which was a lie. And we can get into that if you want. But I envisioned that it was this calm pond and a helicopter dropped a 50-ton boulder in the middle of it and just those ripples reached the the shores and that ripples were my family my wife at the time society my friends all because i lacked the courage to ask for what i really needed to to explain to my wife at the time that i couldn't afford our lifestyle that i wanted to create that i wanted to do something different with my life i wanted to leave that corporate world and I was so caught up in that chase and really I wanted to create and that shame just consumed me. I was, I think it's Brene Brown and I'm not sure she might've, she's the one who popularized it. I'm not sure she's the first to say it, but you know, guilt is I did something wrong or I did something bad. Shame is I am bad. Yeah. And I just looked at the damage I had done. And I remember writing in my journal, I will never be worthy of love, joy, and happiness ever again. I, I believed that. I believed that the same way that my hair is brown. It was, it became my truth. And so I'm living with the shame. And I started, I started meditating in prison. This is going to take us somewhere, but I started meditating in prison. And that shame was so powerful that it, it showed me a short film of what my own suicide would look like. It was extremely graphic. I was in one of the one of the basements of one of the homes I owned, and uh, there was a chair and a really dirty window, and in walks this figure with a black hood over its head. And I knew I was watching it like it was a movie. 
And I knew that was me. I could feel the resignation on my shoulders. And I sit on the chair and I pull out a pistol that was underneath the chair and I put it in my mouth and I pull the trigger. And that came into my meditation once. And I did what we would all do. I, I just waved it off because it was so disturbing. And I thought, boy, that was weird. I you know, don't ever want to think about that again. And then the vision came back. And then it came back. And then it came back. And it played every second of every day for four months straight. It was a loop that I could not escape. And it got to the point where I could actually feel the temperature of the gun barrel. I could feel the chair underneath me. I could feel everything as if it was happening in real time. And I would go to sleep at night and I would pray that the hand of death would kill me in my sleep. Give me a heart attack. Give me something. Give me an aneurysm, something. So I don't wake up in the morning. And every morning when I woke up, I was disappointed to see the light of a new day. I was crushed. I couldn't tell anybody what I was experiencing because if you mentioned suicide in prison, do you know what they do? They lock well, you in solitary. Yeah, I only know because I, I I listen to the story, but yeah, this audience doesn't. So yeah, they put so it, you go from one hell to another, and then you're just left alone with these thoughts, right? You're just left alone. They take anything. They take all your property, anything that you could harm yourself with, and you're actually in uh, pretty much like a three three sided or you know it's four four sides, but three of the sides are glass, so that they can keep an eye on you, and you are you know you are locked away until you're deemed no longer a harm to yourself or to somebody else. And here I am alone at rock bottom with the man who was responsible for all of this. And I hated that man. The idea of being locked in solitary scared the hell out of me. So I couldn't share with any of my friends in prison who were some of the nicest guys I've ever met because I would be afraid that they would tell a guard, right? And then all of a sudden it's out. I can't share over the phone. Phone calls are recorded. Uh, emails are recorded. Can't share with anybody. So I just bottle it up and then and i just start planning how i'm going to take my life and it was a miracle that my best friend of over 30 years his name is sean emails me wednesday afternoon never forget he emails me and just says one thing one thing one question hey man can i come for a visit this weekend and immediately a little bit of weight comes off of my shoulders because the visiting room is not recorded it is not monitored Sean is my best friend of 30 plus years. I can trust him with everything that I am experiencing. I can get this demon out of me. It seems to take forever for Saturday to arrive, but it finally does. And I watch Sean park his truck and make the long walk up the hill, comes into the visiting room, we hug. And that alone is a special moment because it's not a lot of touch in prison, you know, shockingly, but there's not a lot of touch. And when you don't, experience that human connection that actual touch from somebody it's amazing how much you can miss it how much you, how meaningful it is and so we hug and i'm already feeling better sean buys some food from the vending machine i have to you know i can't touch money because if you touch money in prison it means you're planning an escape so i gotta be like hey can i have b12 can i have c23 you know <laughs> we get our food and we we settle down and jason i can't express how good I feel that I'm going to be able to get this out of me, that I can share four months of this movie that won't stop playing in my mind. And I open my mouth to speak with joy filling me. Before I can say a word, Sean interrupts me. He cuts me off. He's getting a divorce. He's got money issues. He's got work issues. His life is an absolute mess. 
and there's a sadness in his in his voice and in his eyes in our 30 plus years of friendship I, I i've never heard or seen if october 1st 2013 was the day that my life changed sean's visit i wish i had remembered the actual date but sean's visit was the next day that my life changed because in that moment i realized i had worth outside of all the things that i had always thought made me worthy i wasn't my watches i wasn't my cars i was a friend and nothing more that day changed my life. Wow. That is so, so very powerful, Craig. And again, to reiterate to this audience, I mean, how many people think that, you know, here's a great example. I want to pay my, uh, my dad a compliment. Cause you just reminded me of something. So my dad, he started losing his eyesight when he was 39 years old. He suffers from macular degeneration. Hmm. And so, I mean, and my dad was like old school, you know, the provider, the, the, I mean, just that, that kind of just old school mentality. And all of a sudden, slowly, it's all being ripped away to the point he can't drive and he can't be the provider. And so my stepmom has to really amp, amp up her real estate business. And, and I remember, and so my dad, as you can imagine, went through this time of just feeling worthless. Like he, I, I'm, I'm, his identity was being head of the household and provider and everything. He could no longer do that. And I remember telling him one time, that I said, well, dad, I said, you, and if you met my dad, Craig, by the way, if you met him, you would be like, wait, Jason, I thought you said he was blind. You, you wouldn't know it. He would never complain about it. He, he still has a little, his, his peripheral vision is all he has, no central vision, but he does everything in his power to make everyone around him not know he has a side impairment. And I said, dad, I said, you know, we were in a conversation about him feeling like he was no longer, you know, nobody depended on him. What, what, what value is it? Is, is he asked the dad, I said, all of the grandkids lives, you know, my children, my brother and sister's children, they've watched their grandfather and known what you were suffering from. And they've watched how you've dealt with it. Never complained, never said a word. So do you understand the value that they've received in witnessing your reaction to that? And so, and he, and I, whether it landed or not, my dad's a pretty hard headed guy, but I think that what you bring up is such an exceptional point. I just came from my, my wife's grandfather just passed away a few, a couple of weeks ago. And when you, and again, not a quote unquote worldly important man, not the CEO of a fortune 500 company, but I mean, he, he spent 35 years loading trucks at a feed store, but to listen to these people talk about him. And the things he had done and the way he had impacted their lives, it's it's crazy, man. We all have something in us that someone else, another member of the human race, can benefit from. And so pick up back with your friend because I, I love this idea of that you in again at the at the bottom of the pit, you know, in the in 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 the belly of the whale. You realize even then, wait a minute, I still have something of value to offer someone. It just doesn't have to do with any of the, the worldly crap that we get so consumed with. So pick up from there, man. So a big part of that, thank you for sharing the story about your father, by the way. That was really, that was beautiful. Um, and, I, and I love how you tied that in here. I think it was very important to bring that, bring that up. So thank you. Um, with Sean, it was 
you know, it dawned on me all of a sudden when I'm like, I have worth outside of everything. And I started in my head, Sean has no idea any of this is going on, by the way. I am listening to him, but I'm having a massive conversation while he's still, you know, still right. talking. And it, you know, dawned on me, he could have walked 100 feet to his brother's house. They were neighbors, literally like 100 feet. He's really close with his brother. He could have had that conversation with him. Um, but he drove two hours to come to federal prison. Real big shocker here. Federal prison is not the most fun place to come to. And, you know, that's because he needed his friend. Specifically to your point, I had something that he needed. And we don't know what that is. And we might know what it is. And we may never know what it is. But I think that if we live by principles and values and live in alignment with ourselves and always try to you know, borrow from um, the four agreements, always do our best. You know, and these aren't just platitudes, but to show up, to smile at strangers, to be nice to the woman who's behind the register at the deli that you go to. I'm thinking of Marbago Place in town here, you know, just being nice. You never know. Talking about that boulder dropping into the pond and the ripples. The same applies here. We don't know what the ripple effects of a small act of kindness are. I could not agree and, more. You know, and we might not find out ever but yeah. we do back to that fixed and growth mindset is having that growth mindset we do it because we want to grow because we want to learn and maybe a little selfishly but in a good way it makes us feel good yeah absolutely oh absolutely but it, it, it's so powerful and well and it's like i don't care if it's tony robbins dean degraciosi whomever it is they always go back to the fact that start with some gratitude understand we all have something there's something to be thankful for and one of my favorite exercises that someone um i wish i could give credit where credit to i can't remember where i heard this but i've used it a lot since it's like um it says that okay the only things that like that, that to go through this mental exercise the only things you can take from one day to the next you can only take 10 things the 10 most important things to you from one day to the next now choose what those 10 things are. So everyone that you think you have nothing of value, you have nothing to be grateful for, including your life, your health, your happiness, uh, a friend that you can actually pour into their life. Just take for a moment and think, okay, if you could only take 10 things into the next day, what would they be? You're going to have a very hard time coming up with only 10 with the, with the 10, because there's probably so much more that we all have. Um, now you did bring something up that I want to talk about for a little bit, which is meditation, because that's something that I have learned the power of. And for the exact same reasons that I, I heard in your Ted talk that you mentioned, you didn't do it. Cause we, we say we don't have time, which I watched Hugh Jackman on Instagram a while back go. Yeah. That's like saying you don't have time to take a shower. I mean, it's just that powerful. So it was during, you know, um, now let me recall, was it, it was during the meditation that the, the, the suicidal, ideation that's when it kind of came the monkey brain said hey here's a you could do this right is, is, is am i right about that that's what it was you nailed it yep absolutely okay. okay so now you've met with sean you've kind of had this epiphany wait a minute whoa if i'm not here i'm not here for sean and that means something it means something to him it means something to you we go to meditate again you're in your journaling does the 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 hooded craig reappear or how, what's how does that work? And then from there, take it into just describing to this audience 
what meditation means and how powerful it is because it is such a powerful tool that we all have in our toolkit should we choose to exercise it. So I want to um, actually after, so after Sean unloads on me, right? He, he goes all this and I just listen and I'm just being a friend. Uh, I never did tell him. We ended up talking about what's Jason up to? What's Chris up to? You know, having fun, laughing. I didn't even share with him because I didn't have to. Wow. I didn't have to. That's how powerful that was. And so that night, was the first night in months that I wasn't praying for death to kill me in my sleep. Uh, when I awoke the next morning, it was not rainbows and unicorns. I was still in prison, but I didn't want to die. And that gave me a lot of space and that gave me a lot of room. So I would meditate in the morning. Um, I would wake up about 5.40. First meditation. Hooded vision was gone. The journaling had changed. The tone of the journaling um, had changed. It was still a lot, I'm not gonna lie, there's still a lot of tremendous amount of shame and um, pity party, like why am I here and I shouldn't be here. You know, all of those things. But the, the tone and the energy changed because what I had realized was I had this compulsion to give meaning to the suffering. I realized that I could turn this into something. No idea what that something would be. Didn't have a face, didn't have anything. I just knew that it could turn into something. So it became much more intentional. So my meditation practice became much more intentional. It became an avenue for me to connect with myself on a deeper level, to understand myself on a deeper level too observe those thoughts to see the ones that keep coming up the repetitive ones what is my monkey mind completely you know always throwing back at me what keeps coming up and this couples really really nicely with journaling because um journaling which by the way meditation journaling gratitude practice started um those three practices in prison um i'm now coming on like nine years where i don't miss a day you know they're that important to me uh, I loved the Hugh Jackman thing. It's right. I mean, it's like it's missing showering. They're that important to me. And so that journaling, you know, the themes start coming up. Well, the themes are the same ones that are coming up in meditation. This gives me a direction. This gives me a, why am I having this pity party? Why am I pointing the fingers elsewhere? You know, what all of those things. So meditation was that many factors here. We could have probably an hour long conversation about this, but it was the being able to sit with myself and those thoughts, not seeking an escape. My life free arrest was one of escape. I was a tremendous drinker. Materialism is escape. Um, corporate success. If you are um, seeking to complete your identity the way I was, that's an escape. Meditation is the opposite of escape. It is sitting with yourself. It's confronting yourself and really seeing, like I said, those themes, but also the shadow, you know, young shadow, seeing the parts of me that I don't like. And for 20 minutes a day, I'm, I'm not running for myself and I'm observing it. And James Altucher and I had this conversation about meditation where it, and he's mentioned this on a show, but it's not about the 20 minutes that you're sitting. It's about the 23 hours and 40 minutes of the rest of the day. Absolutely. 100%. <laughs> how, how I show up 
in those 23 hours and 40 minutes. And the way that I do as a result of meditation, I'll, I'll share this. I'm curious about your kind of experience with this as well. I had when I'd gotten out of prison, um, you know, I'd been meditating for a little while now and something happened. I wish I could remember what it was, but it was something that should have upset me, should have angered me or would have in the past. I hate that word should, right? And I just look at it and I was like, okay, that happened. And then like 30 seconds later, I just dawned on me and I go, I didn't react. I responded. <laughs> and I was like, the meditation, like it clicked, you know, the tumblers came into place. And I was like, that's the meditation. 100%. It, um, so it's interesting that you mention the boulder and the ripples, because one of my, one of the things that I visualize whenever I'm meditating is this little pond up in the mountains in Telluride that my daughters and I went fishing on one time. <clears throat> I picture that when I sit down, I picture that pond and it is kind of wavy. The, the, the waves of my mind is kind of, kind of the wind's kind of blowing. And throughout the course of my meditation, it's just like to make it like glass and doing that enough. You're absolutely right. Life just moves slower. Not like, you know, you're on some, you know, not like you just hit a bong or something. I've never smoked weed, but you know, kind of what I understand. It's not like that. Like, Hey man, wow. Everything's kind of slow. No, it's not like that. It's just that you're, you're faster. You're, 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 you're able to process at such a fast speed that it appears things have gone slower and you just re and you don't react out of fear as much. You don't react, react out of anxiety. So, 100%. You're absolutely spot on, Craig. One of the best benefits of meditating for me is that I'm able to, you know, Victor Frankl used to say between action and reaction is space, right? And so I'm real, my, my goal is to always be able to just, I mean, manage with absolute precision and stretch out that, that, that space between action and reaction and the greatest key the greatest tool for allowing me to be able to master that space thus far has been meditation so 100 man it's um when i discovered that victor frankl quote i um might have actually been in prison i, I don't think it matters it was early on in, in it's a great journey. time to read man search for meaning uh, i've discovered i reread it every year yeah um, i reread it every year i just um i just finished my yearly reread about like a month ago or yep. two months ago or so but the in-between stimulus and response is space. And within that space is um, our freedom or something like that. I'm butchering the quote. But when I realized how important freedom was to me and I connected with that quote, I was like, this is why I meditate. I want to live in that gap. I want to live and occupy that space. That's where I want to be because that is freedom. And freedom is one of my core values. And it's one of the most important things to me is that freedom and how I define it. You know, and one of the things too, that I, I could not agree more, man. This is, this is such good stuff. So we, we, I mentioned the monkey mind and for, for those of you who don't meditate or have never, the, the monkey brain is essentially your the ancestral part of your brain that kind of reminds you of all the things you need to be worried about, worried about. And the monkey, God bless that monkey. It just really wants you to, to survive. And what's crazy. And I don't know, I might be totally off base because I just came up with this little um, thought while you were talking, Craig, it's almost like in your case, and I've been there too, by the way. I mean, I, I have been in those moments of there's no other way out of this other than just to go ahead and end it myself. But it's almost like, your monkey brain in that meditation was saying, hey, 
this life is is full of so many things that are so bad here is our survival mechanism we can we can help you escape it by taking this route your your mon- and your monkey brain if you're not controlling that space which i think trains the monkey then it will the monkey will give you the some decisions that are about as wise as what a freaking monkey might give you like well you know craig you're in a really bad shape and you're pretty full of shame here's a suggestion but no monkey this and then all of a sudden it sounds like you're meeting with sean and in the journaling and the gratitude and the meditation you started to retrain the monkey to say and i'm this again this is all philosophical i'm just kind of you know forgive me give me a little 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 grace here audience it sounds to me like you subconsciously in that moment told the monkey okay thanks for the suggestion but we're not going that way there's another route and so then all of a sudden the monkey starts making suggestions by you giving space to your your thoughts and your mind into learning other options we're not going to do that so for survival's sake and for this the ability to thrive we're going to start taking some other options instead that's i mean is that kind of what the, the evolution of that whole thing options are freedom so absolutely yeah, man yeah I options are freedom you know when i had that when i was wearing the blinders and i could only see one way out you know driving down a one-way street where am i gonna go there's no turns you know i mean it's, it's a highway with no exits um you know and all of a sudden sean's visit and and resetting the monkey and taking that vision away, it all of a sudden opened up different possibilities for me. And you know, you touched on something earlier in our conversation, which I think is really important. You talked about you know really hitting that rock bottom, and you know the fact that I've turned it into something. I think it's really important for the audience to to know is that that's also a choice. Yes, you know, Amen. that's a choice because I could have stayed at rock bottom in the burnt ashes of my former life and through journaling and through all that meditation and you know i realized if i did that i would i would die bitter and regretful yep you know and i didn't want that but here's the here's the scary thing the those burnt ashes you know i sat in those for a while they're comfortable only in their certainty it's not where i wanted to be but there's comfort that first step out of those burnt ashes that's into the unknown I have no idea what the heck is waiting for me when I take that first step. And that's terrifying. So, you know, when we, when we hit that crucible moment, that rock bottom, um, you know, we may have that epiphany, right? But it's what we do with it. There's still another choice to be made where we have to consciously take that first step out of rock bottom. That is so powerful. And man, I almost jump out of my seat because there's so many people that think that everything is so finite and and a great example. Um, so I had someone, you know, very close to me, betray me greatly. And every rule of society, like society's rules, you know, in in polite company, well, you know, Oh gosh, Craig, I'm sorry. We just don't think we're, we're going to be able to associate with you anymore. That's that's so we believe that there's these rules. And so my rule in my case was you separate yourself from this person, never go near them again. You know, you know, that's, that's what's, that's what everybody you're supposed to hate. You're supposed to despise whatever shame they have is that is well-deserved. 
And we think these things, but there's also another choice. There is the choice to forgive. There's the choice to forgive other people. There's the choice to forgive ourselves. You may, you mentioned something too that I think, is, think it's very powerful. So I, I mean, once this guy told me this analogy, he said, you know, here's the thing about being comfortable, like you said, in the ashes, because you're right. They're our ashes. At least we know what we're getting. The fear of the unknown is something we just as humans don't do well with. And he said, you know, imagine that if you were sitting around a circle and everybody said, okay, put your problems in a sack and throw them in the middle. All right, now go grab some problems. We're going to go grab our own every single time just because we know our problems and we'll just hang on to them. Well, here's the cool thing about life. And to your point is you can take your problems and guess what? You don't have to go grab other problems. You just go get, go grab an alternative reaction to your own issues, your own problems. And that's what I love about your story, man, is that you realized I don't have to sit in shame and just I don't have to be identified with this. I can completely flip this script. I can make this a choice to turn beauty for ashes, using your word, beauty for ashes. And all of us have that freedom should we choose to exercise it. So I just, I had to really put an exclamation point on that because I think we get so convinced that there's choice A, there's choice B, nothing else, and society or my parents, my environment, my circumstances, they say I must choose B no matter what. Well, be a freaking rebel. Be, be real crazy and rebellious and go, I forgive you. I mean, I know that's that's crazy town, right? But but you have that option, right? It's we always we always have that option. And you know, one thing I'm going to share a story, and I hope that it I hope that it ties nicely with what you just said. I think I think it does. Is so I'll frame it with this: the greatest gift that I received from my prison experience was perspective, right? Yeah. Is the gift of perspective. And there was one day after Sean's visit, after I was you know, knew I had to give meaning to the suffering and making a little bit of headway. Well, that shame's still there. The reality of the world was still upon me. And I'm standing in my prison cube and I'm thinking that, you know, I, I don't have anywhere to live. You know, technically I'm homeless. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, I've got a long time in my sentence before I have to worry about this, but that sense of homelessness came over. I have no money. I have no career. I have nothing. And I just started repeating to myself, almost the way that film played in my head, standing, I remember looking at the linoleum floor and just going, I have nothing. I have nothing. I did this, Jason. I can't even tell you how many times I said, I have nothing. But all of a sudden, I'm saying, I have nothing. I'm repeating it. And kind of thinking about that monkey minded, like that shift, like saying it over and over again, repeating it, it became clear to me something very powerful. I go, I have nothing. <laughs> I have nothing. I have, and all of a sudden, I, my head is picked back up. I'm looking out the window. I feel elated, repeating, I have nothing. And all of a sudden, it dawns me, I go, when you have nothing, that means I have nothing to lose. I can do whatever the hell I want. Amen. That one thing that was absolutely crushing to me, it just shifted my perspective. And that's a choice. We control our perspective. I think and that's re it's really important. I think it is so huge, and it's the exact reason why. Uh, so I'm sure that you've you've done some study of Stoic philosophy, and yes. you know Seneca, he would famously put himself in these very abased situations, 
where he would, even though he was wealthy and it's hard to simulate, I mean, yours is reality. There are people, I've been in moments where it's a reality, right? But he would try to simulate sleeping on the hard ground and the outdoors and only having, you know, like hard moldy bread and water for like an extended period of time, just to realize that, you know, even with nothing, as far as material trappings and comforts and everything, that can be the greatest freedom of all. You I mean, and that's one of the things I know that people will think, I get it. Okay, I get it, Craig, for, for different reasons. And a lot of the audience will go, it's gonna, that's a hard to get your mind around, but they're, one of the greatest gifts in the world is having nothing to lose because then all of a sudden, with the least little kernel, you have everything to gain, right? I mean, it's all of a sudden everything. It's kind of like fasting, right? When you fast for a week, all of a sudden everything tastes really, really good. And so I, it's so awesome to hear you say that perspective and then to kind of have that switch of nothing. So when that happened, when did, what was the first, what was the first mental meal that you digested that you realized as a man with nothing that started to have this little bitty thing that this tastes good having nothing tastes good and just how did you start it's like you have a house with it's empty and you get to start refilling it with exactly how you want how did that process play out that process it started realizing that i had nothing i could look at all those things that i wanted to do free arrest that i was too afraid to do yeah. I could write that book. I could um, face my fear of public speaking. Public speaking was my number one fear. I realized that I made fear-based choices and that's what landed me in prison. So my intuition told me I had to write down all my fears and I had to execute them one by one. Realizing I had nothing gave me a lot of room to be able to, to do that. So it's like, what do I want to create? What do I want in my life? That's what having nothing gave me. It was like, okay, I have nothing, great. What do I want? To, I love that house analogy. I think that's brilliant. I mean, it's like, okay, you know, and really let's continue on that house analogy because it actually is something that I used in my reinvention and my rebuilding. It was like, I need a, I need a strong foundation. I didn't have a strong foundation pre-arrest. So I need a strong foundation because if I'm going to build my life again, if I don't have that strong foundation, it's going to, if, if, if and when life throws another curveball, because let's be honest, life does throw curveballs. There's not going to be prison in my future, but life will throw a curveball. Death is inevitable. You know, there's, we don't know. And it's like, I need that foundation. So whenever things go sideways, I have that to fall back on. Yeah. And, you know, for me, you know, my foundation is I trust myself. I am worthy. I am enough. I love myself. I accept myself. I am safe. Those are the pillars of my foundation. And I still, to this day, work to maintain them. And that's something real important. I don't want to take us too far on a tangent, but it's like, this is a journey. All of this is a journey. There's no destination. This isn't one and done. You know, um, I've, got to, I've got to diligently maintain each of those pillars. And if I don't, it speaks very much to the work of James Altucher. You know, if I let those pillars um, go, then my life... I, something's not right. I'm not in alignment. So I have to diligently work on those. And so that was that having nothing was really build that foundation. What do I want to build on top of that? So, 
Okay. I, and I think that is and just, I'm so glad. This is why I said at the very beginning, this is so important for this audience. This is an important conversation because I, my heart goes out as someone who's dealt with shame and been around people that dealt with shame and, and just, just kind of wanting the do over and realizing it's, it's your choice. Every day is a, a new life for a wise man. I, I just, I'm so glad that you touched on some of the, some of these things because uh, I just think there's got to be somebody out there that's like they think they're in the pit and they think there's no way out. So, man, this is awesome stuff. So, all right, now you've started having this great revelation. You've started to, you started to find gain in your nothingness. You're starting to fill, build this new home. So should we go, is there anything that's happened in prison that we really need to, to cover? Or I want to start moving into the kind of the the up to the ted talk seems to make the most sense for me which by the way i think it's kind of crazy that speaking was one of your 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 biggest fears because one you end up on a ted stage and two you crushed it i mean you're that 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 ted talk that's kind of your 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 wheelhouse speech about this story and i presume that that's the one that you you walked off of thinking oh, oh my you know what what just happened um it's just you you've taken this from to a degree that let's face it craig I mean, this, is, this is pretty special what you've done so what do we need to cover in prison before we start to get to kind of this this taking this newfound revelation and actually putting it into actionable actions one key element in prison there were a lot but i want to focus on this one that we can go to the ted talk um i didn't know and so uh, you you serve some time in prison then you go to a halfway house Okay. Um, and I really wanted to go to the halfway house because you can leave. You know, if you have a job, you can go to the job. You can go to the pharmacy. You get passes to leave. You get a taste of freedom. So I really wanted that. I was dying for it. But you don't know when you're actually going. There's so many factors. Do they have a bed? Do they have this? You know, I mean, there's so many factors. So it's up in the air about when I'm going to go. And then I finally find out. Somebody comes up to me. My nickname in prison was Smiley. And they said, Smiley, you got a date. And that means you're leaving prison to go to the halfway house. So I'm like ecstatic. I was like, I got a date. I'm leaving this place. I can't wait. Oh my God, I don't have a home. Oh my God, I don't have a job. Who's going to date a felon? I have no money. The weight of the actual world. Prison sucks, but it's three squares and a roof over your head. I was like, what am I going to do in the real world? And by the way, prison, like news spreads like wildfire. So immediately everybody knows I have a date, right? <laughs> and my, my mentor, this guy, Ed, he comes up to me and he says, you have, you have a date, how are you feeling? And I said to him, I was like, Ed, I have no house. I have no career. Who's going to date a fellow? I laid it all out for him, all the fears that I have. And Ed put his arm around me. And again, touch is rare in prison, but he put his arm around me um, in a very fatherly manner. He's probably 20, 25 years, my senior. And he goes, Craig, you have a blank canvas. You can paint any picture you want. And that goes to that nothingness. That goes to that ability. And that is the name of my book is Blank Canvas, How I Reinvented My Life After Prison. That's where that title came from. And that was one of those epiphany moments. That was that nothing moment. It was just like, what do I want to paint? And one of the things I wanted to paint was conquering that fear of speaking. And when I was in prison and made that goal, I thought of the biggest stage I could get on was the TED, TEDx stage. And so I made a goal in prison to conquer that fear. 
And so what did you start doing? What, like, so you're out, it was it in the halfway house that you start doing something? What does life look like? Because to your point, like, like, look, I think of Brooks Hadlin, who was in prison a lot longer than you in Shawshank Redemption. It didn't turn out well for Brooks. The world is very big. I, and look, I've got a family member, uh, Craig, it's, it, this is kind of, uh, it's kind of interesting that we're having this conversation. So I've got a family member and um, he spent better part of his life in, uh, in prison for drugs and all sorts of things. And I, I get to talk to him every once in a while. And I talked to him this past week and he said, you know, he said, wow. He said, I, I got out on a work program and he said, I'm cleaning and detailing cars. And he goes, it's amazing how much cars have changed over the years. He said, they're all computerized. Everything. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, you're not much younger than me. And yeah, the world has just moved in such a fast direction. So I'm thinking, just models of cars and all this kind of the life is, you know, life is this train that just keeps on trucking and it doesn't matter what's going on in our life. It just keeps moving forward. And so now you've had to, you kind of stepped off the train for a moment, but you're hopping back on the train. So what, what how do you start to implement this, this plan to write blank canvas to get to the TEDx stage? I mean, just practically speaking, and how did you overcome what had to have been some anxiety and some fear? I mean, we've dealt with the shame or whatever, but now you've got to have anxiety, fear, imposter syndrome, all these things. How do you start to productively deal with those things? So I will, I started writing Blank Canvas when I was in prison. Okay. Um, okay. Didn't know what the heck I was doing. I started writing it um, then. Uh, speaking, public speaking, I couldn't address that until I got out. So in the halfway house, which is funny you mentioned that there were, um, so my prison camp was safe. Um, so was the halfway house, but I was now in general population with the murderers, the rapists, you know, I mean, some really hardcore. We had a very high ranking official of the Bloods. Um, oh, gosh. You know, I had uh, the former consigliere of a very large mafia family. I actually was lucky and was able to get into his room because it was quiet and it was clean. So that's a whole nother story. But, <laughs> you know, we had some very high profile people who had done some interesting things. The Mafia hitman, fortunately, really took a liking to me. You know, I mean, thing, it was in a very different environment. But we had um, we had computers, we had internet access. Um, that was obviously limited, you know, no porn, no like violent things. But I was like, okay, I made this commitment to myself to conquer the sphere of public speaking. So I do like public speaking. And Toastmasters comes up on the Google search, right? Yeah. And I, I, this talk about fear, talk about imposter syndrome, talk about shame. This answer comes up and I go to their website there's nothing wrong with their website at all. But I look at it and I was like, no, nah, I don't like that answer. I don't like that answer. That's not for me. Mm -hmm. And a few months go by, I realize I'm not living up to my commitment. I do the search again. Toastmasters obviously comes up again. I wave it off again. And then finally, I said, I made a commitment. And the fact of the matter is by ignoring my heart that said, stop, don't do this. This is not the way. Thousands of times. I destroyed that voice. I destroyed my self-trust. And without that self-trust, very simple decisions were very hard to make. What am I going to eat for dinner? What kind of workout am I going to do? Like, you know, they became these crushing things, talking about like that fixed mindset of afraid to make a mistake, afraid to make another bad choice. So I had to build that self-trust. The way I did that was I made and kept commitments to myself. And finally, I hit that, that crux where I was like, I'm going to a meeting. I'm committing to speaking if they allow volunteers to do it. And you touched on that shame. You touched on that fear. I go to the meeting. I'm sweating bullets. 
they ask for volunteers. My right arm shoots up and I'm like, who the hell did that? Who, who did that? They, they ask me a question um, and you have two minutes to respond. I speak for 26 seconds and I sit back down in my chair and it's gonna sound ridiculous, but I was like, I just faced my biggest fear and I didn't die. And I was like, I immediately wanna do it again. And so that, that speaking, was very much an avenue for me to rebuild that self-trust while simultaneously, there's gonna be a lot of interwoven things here, while simultaneously learning how to forgive myself. And I was learning to build that self-trust and forgive myself by being vulnerable. Um, for anybody who doesn't know what Toastmasters is, it's an international organization focused on public speaking and leadership skills. And the first speech that any member of Toastmaster gives is called the icebreaker. And the icebreaker is, as it sounds, it's an introduction to yourself. There's no strict format. You could talk about whatever you want. And I realized because of that shame, because of the lack of self-trust, um, the fear, I was like, I'm going to go big. And I went up there and I announced that I was a federally convicted felon who wanted to kill himself. That was my icebreaker, was my journey through shame. Jaws. Oh, man. jaws were on the floor they were like nobody's ever come in here and done that and i was terrified the whole time i was doing it And when i was done i felt like a new man and i realized the power of story and i realized the power of words and i kept that commitment to myself and i was vulnerable because shame lives and breathes in the dark it's like a fungus and how do we how do we defeat that we shine a light on it we shine a light on it be being vulnerable so you know um, thank you for the kind words on my TED talk. That was me going to the place I did not want to go because I had a mission to help the one person who feels right now how I used to feel. And that's, that's there's a you know I know there's a lot in there, but it's it was a hell of a journey and one of the most important ones I've ever taken. Wow, I gotta believe, yeah, I gotta believe that icebreaker was pretty money, dude. I mean that that's, that, that is powerful and. Um, so here's the thing that you just said right there at the end of that was that you discovered what, what I think what can really, and it goes back to Viktor Frankl, you found purpose. And see, it's, it's, it's a beautiful story for you to overcome the shame. It's a beautiful story for you to get your life back together. It's a powerful story when you decide to devote your life to a purpose that benefits those around you and the fruit of all these experiences or, you know, begin to feed your, your, the, the people that come into your circle and well beyond. So tell us now where you are in life, Craig, and how you maintain that mindfulness of purpose. I mean, you've got another book coming out. Please feel free to, to talk about that, about how now everything you do and what it can mean to this audience. If you are able to you know, whether it's Simon Sinek and his golden circle and discovering your why, whether it's just that, you know, Rick Warren, it, you know, the old, the purpose driven life, you have found purpose, how powerful that is. And tell this audience what that looks like now to you that you're not writing in a journal in the cell of a prison. You're, 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 you meditate now as a free man, you know, and it's all, I, I, it sounds to me like, it's driven by this purpose that you found in your life and how others can start to find their own purpose. How, how can they do that? And why is that such a powerful motive? 
This is this is huge, and thank you for asking that. And I feel the need to rewind a little bit to sure. when I first started writing Blank Canvas. Um, I was in the Otisville Federal Prison Library. You know, I was uh, a few months into writing it. I'm using the black and white composition notebooks, remember, from school, oh, sure, which, sure. which, by the way, I still use for journaling. Yeah. Uh, maybe my own little, like, uh, institutionalized uh, prison experience. I still use those. But I'm using my cheap big pen, and I'm writing, and I'm writing about getting divorced. I'm writing about getting arrested by the FBI, about the shame, about entering prison for the first time, walking into that medium security facility, things that just occurred. They were really fresh. It was the equivalent of pouring bleach on an open wound. And I was just like, why am I doing this to myself? Why am I torturing myself like this? I'm in prison, in my own hell. Why the hell am I doing this? Well, my heart spoke and it was not going to be ignored this time. And I flipped to a blank page and it said to help one person. That is when, to your point, is the the mission, the purpose. That is when I connected with that. That is still what fuels me to this day. As I navigate the waters of my second book, which is God knows when it's going to come out. My writing process is a complete disaster. I've learned to respect my process. No, no ETA on that. Maybe 18 months is kind of like a target I'm setting in my head. You know, I wrote over a million words to get to the 52,000 in blank canvas. You know, that's I just, I'm very prolific. I just write and then I distill it back down and I'm doing very similar thing with this book. But it's those times when I feel stuck and I feel like I have nothing to write. It was like, how can I help that one person? Me being stuck doesn't help that one person. So what is it that I can do? And I think about what am I afraid to say? Because that's what needs to be said. You know, that's and I, I and I rely a little on, um, not a little, a lot. He helped me through um, Blank Canvas Hemingway. You know, when you have writer's block, when you feel stuck, write one true sentence, yeah. followed by another, followed by another. So I'll just write that one true sentence with the fuel of helping that one person. And that's why that's why I write the posts that I do. It's why I write the second book while I'll be writing a third and fourth book. Um, this is a, I wanna actually bring this, I think this is an important delineation, is I think Simon Sinek's why. I call it mission, it's purpose, whatever it is. And I think why is a really good way of looking at that. That's the fuel, right? That is that inner, fire, that pilot light that's never off, that we can turn up and turn down, right? Then I believe we all have our life's calling. I believe that is the medium to express our why. Mine is writing and speaking. Man, that's I, I could not agree more. And I want to go back to I want to I want to reiterate the quote that you that you said just a minute ago. The thing that you're afraid to write is the thing that you most – you probably need to write, or however you said that. I yeah. think that is so cool, and that's one of the things that I've struggled with a lot. Again, going back to the fixed mindset, we're performers. we got to look good. We may suck, but as long as we look good, you know, that's that's the most important thing. And, um, you know, I guess uh, I've started reading – reading a little bit of uh, Carl Jung and the power of the, tr- the true self, right? Which is one of, and, and, you know, Brene Brown, you mentioned her earlier. That's one of the things that, that's kind of her claim to fame is vulnerability is take having the courage to be who you authentically are, which sounds kind of woo or sounds kind of fl- flowery, but, you know, to this audience, I would challenge you. What is your deepest, darkest fear and insecurity? 
okay, now go act on it. And tell me that doesn't take some freaking courage. You know, we're all, you know, I think it was Beth Moore, uh, author one time said, you know, most of us live our life, or she was talking about most of us go to church in the witness protection program. Most of us live our lives in the witness protection program. We don't want people to know who we really are. And so we, we go through all these but if gestures, but the only way, because you, what you just said, your mission and your calling, I don't know, Craig, if we can fully leverage that calling without first truly being being true to our authentic self and having the courage to take our ugliest, most, I mean, obviously, you know, you don't just want to go stand up and go, hey, guess what I did last night? But, you know, in a very purposeful and deliberate way to get on that stage and go, here I am warts and all. And, I, and the reason why I have the courage to share this with you is because my life calling is to help if only one person who's dealing with shame or who, who or is sitting in that dusty chair in a basement in, in their mind, thinking of taking their life, you need, I, I am willing to expose myself and to show you there is victory on the other side of this. Um, that's a powerful, powerful thing, man. And I'm, I'm just, I'm 48 years old and I struggle as a 48 year old man that's been through some stuff to just be completely authentic and honest with people, you know, and admit the things I'm not good at this. So I shouldn't be doing that and I'm okay with it or whatever the case may be. So I just, I love what you said when you, when you said the thing that you're most afraid to write is probably the thing you need to kind of meditate on and get on paper, right? It is, and I, I think you said something really important in there. This isn't just about, oh, guess what I did last night. That's gratuitous. Uh, yeah. You know, to me, I think um, there's a lot of that uh, in the space that we exist in now, social media. And I oh, think yes. it's the belief that it's being vulnerable. I believe it's gratuitous. It's serving oneself. I believe true vulnerability is in service of somebody else. It is not a, hey, look at me. It is a, hey, I experienced this. I hope my sharing of the story can help you. I think there's a massive, massive difference in that. And I think that for me, I can, so I have, um, I have, uh, talking of Stoic philosophy, I have a more fatty tattooed on oh. my left forearm and I have yep. Memento Mori tattooed on my right. They're upside down. If you and I were in person, mm -hmm. um, they're upside down to you. They're right side up for me because they're for me. So a more, you know, more fatty is that, um, you know, the love of what has happened because we cannot change it, the love of fate. And so I look at my prison experience and I'm wickedly grateful for it. I'm grateful to hit that rock bottom. I'm grateful for that shame because that shame has led me to the vulnerability and transparency, which is freedom. Vulnerability is a gateway to freedom. Absolutely. And and that's so critically important to me. So thinking of that mission, thinking of the calling, thinking of the vulnerability and combining those into a delicious cocktail, yeah. you know, I'm very fortunate that I get to do that every day. Well, and I think also I want to talk about the momentum more because you're exactly right. I mean, we're all dying. And I think that's, you know, talk about the other side of that, which is that, you know, people like to say they live in the present and that, you know, and, there, and there's a big difference of living like there's no tomorrow and being this rebellious, you know, jackass versus I'm living like there's no tomorrow. And so therefore, what am I going to do with it? How am I going to have the most meaning and impact? And I think, you know, talk a little bit about I me mean, since you've got the, the tattoo to show that you really get this. 
what it means to understand that we are all mortal. This is, we don't know when the finite, we don't know when the, the guillotine's going to come down or the curtain's going to fall, but all of us, we are all mortal. What does that, how do you live that side of that, that tattoo out, Craig? I'm going to, I'm going to answer that with a question. So when I got out with a, with a, with a story, um, when I got out of prison, I got a job at a gym in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, making 12 bucks an hour. You know, I was grateful to get out of the halfway house. I ended up becoming the general manager and making a livable wage in Manhattan, which is, you know, not the easiest, not the easiest thing to do, right? Um, I got the tattoo while I was there. And I got it because I wanted to remind myself of that. That time was limited. And I wanted to act in accordance with that. So here I am at the gym and... One of our Pilates instructors, beautiful. She was a Nick dancer. She danced for the uh, for the Knicks. Um, she and I would have these amazing conversations. And finally, one day, I was like, "I'm going to ask her out." I was like, "I'm going to ask her out," and I go and I freeze and I stop and I was like, "There's no way that self worth that enough, you know, all of those things." You know, I put her on a pedestal because she's so beautiful. She's so amazing. All these things. Who am I making $12 an hour? Who am I not? You know, all these things. And I look down at my arm, at my, my reminder, and I slapped my tattoo. And I went off and I asked her out on a date. And she said, yes. That's awesome. You know, like, and so I tell that story because it's the reminder that I keep moving forward. And I don't know when that end is. And I don't think it's about, you know, I'm going to go, like, I'd love to say, like, I'm going to go live like a jackass and be insane. You know, the fact, the fact is, like, if somebody were to tell me that, you know, you're, you have 24 hours left, I wouldn't go out and be a lunatic. You know what I would do? I would contact my family. There you go. I'd go there for a go. walk on, I'd go for a walk on the beach with my fiance. The same thing that I do every single day, weather permitting with her already. Yes. Because it's meaningful to me. I'm going to do what's meaningful. So I think that, that reminder is that it's you know okay so another way to answer this is i think it's critically important that we define success for ourselves not for other people's shoulds expectations opinions success there's only one person on the planet who knows the definition of the success that's me Amen. that's you Amen. <laughs> you know so my definition of success is how much of my day has been invested in doing things that create meaning in my life that's my current definition. And I say current because I also believe success is uh, very evolutionary. Yep. You know, I don't want to fix versus growth. Of it's got to grow as I grow. That's my current definition. So the memento mori is, have I been successful today? This conversation today is unbelievably meaningful to me. Right. You know, I can say this is a success for me. And that's, that's how I want to live. And that's why I have this tattoo. I love it, brother. Well, and I would echo that. I know it is probably, I'm going to have a hard time matching the success of this conversation throughout the rest of this day, Craig. I mean, this has been so fun, brother. And, uh, and, and I, I thank you for this time. And please don't let this be the last time that we, we, uh, we have you on the show. And also, uh, since you're still out, so you're still in Connecticut. I mean, Jim and I are out and we're in Manhattan at least four or five times a year. So we've got to figure out some way to, I'll take you to Beats or something. We'll, 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 I'll bring you back into the belly of the beast that you once, you know, <laughs> tackled. So we, we actually, so my fiance has a place in the upper West side. Oh dude. Okay. <laughs> done, done. We, we've got to make that happen. All right. So, 
where can people find out more about you? Uh, you know, I know, that, I mean, talk about the book, how do people connect with you? Because again, your story is so powerful. And that's why I was so excited about this. So how do people connect with you and, and benefit from your wisdom, even beyond this conversation? Thank you for that. Uh, Craigstanlin.com is a place, great place to start. My book, Blank Canvas, How I Reinvented My Life After Prison, it's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Uh, the TED Talk came up a few times, and I think that will really give you um, an excellent yep. framework for my story and some of my teachings from that. Um, and that is how I learned my greatest worth in federal prison. I think those are three great jumping off points for somebody to, to go with. Well, Craig, thank you, brother. I, I, you have filled my cup today, my man, and I'm so very grateful. Thank you for this time. And any way I can ever return the favor, I'm there, brother. I appreciate you. Jason, thank you so much for having me on. And I want to acknowledge you for having this platform, for having people like me and your other guests where we can share our stories and we can be the rising tide that literally lifts all the boats. So thank you for doing this. And same thing, however I can support you, please let me know. Thanks, Craig. I appreciate you. Sit tight and I'll say goodbye offline. Well, that does it for this episode of The Jason Wright Show. Thank you so much for listening. This has been a Texas Titan Media production. Fourth Wall did the music. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Please consider going out to jasonwrightnow.com and signing up for the Vitruvian Letter. Also, please go out to iTunes. It takes like 30 seconds to just leave us a five-star rating. It does wonders for the podcast. I would be so grateful. And with that, until we meet again, go crush it and endeavor to improve always in all ways. I'm out.